Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today, I'm going to cover two books. The first is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, and the second is Reimagining Apologetics by Justin Ariel Bailey. These are books 22 and 23 from my 2023 reading list. Well, it is July, and July is my month for a break. So I started reading the great books this year. I'm starting the Great Books Project, and I expect it to last 10 years. But I've decided on a schedule for those 10 years, and I want to start each year just reading straight through the Bible, and I'll do a different version each year. So that'll be January and February. Then I'll go into what I'm calling semester one of the great books. That'll be March through June. And then July, I take a break, just read uh, some fun books and books that I've had on my to-be-read pile for a while. And then August through November, back to the great books, that's semester two. And then December, I take another break where I just read books that that kind of come up that, uh, that, that aren't on the great books project and, and perhaps give me a little bit of a mental break. Uh, some of those great books can can be quite intense. So that's where I am right now. And these are the first two books for July for this uh, kind of to be read list. And the way I heard about these is I, uh, I asked Andrew Peterson, who's a he's a singer songwriter, author and, and really a, a entrepreneur who lives here in the Nashville area. And last year, I just asked him for a book suggestion. He's an avid reader. Uh, I like his books. I've covered some of his books on this podcast. And uh, I, I just I like asking people what they read. So I asked him and he suggested this pair of books, which was cool. And so the first was was Gilead here, which is a novel and then reimagining apologetics, which is a work of nonfiction. But I really like this idea of pairing books together, uh, of reading perhaps one's a novel, another one is a nonfiction work that that speak about each other. And so in this case, Gilead is the novel. And then reimagining apologetics is a book that actually references and talks about Gilead quite a bit. So that's that's why these are paired. And that's why I want to talk about both of them in this episode. So I'll, I'll spend a lot of the time covering uh, Gilead. And and then uh, in the in the final segment, I will cover reimagining apologetics. So Gilead is uh, is about well, it's it's an epistolary novel, which means it's a a novel built around a letter, and in this case, it's one super long letter from John Ames to his son. John Ames, in this work of fiction, was born in 1880 in Kansas, but then lives most of his life in Gilead, Iowa. Uh, in, in fact, just two years in Kansas and then the rest in, in Iowa. And this, this letter from the father to the son is neat in the sense that it comes in the latter part of John's life. And so he's writing this letter to his son, Robbie, who happens to be quite young. Uh, so there's a big, big age difference in father and son here. And in fact, towards the, be- the beginning of the book, I-, I thought it was a grandfather writing to his, his son, but it's, it's a, a father writing to his son. And he's kind of looking back over his life. So he's, he's writing to his son. He, he mentions a lot, you know, I wish, I wish you would have known me 
in my in my youth. I wish you would have known me at that time. Uh, but, but he's telling stories about his father, about his grandfather, and then just telling uh, other parts of his life. And and so it's neat. I, I really love epistolary novels. Uh, I, uh, a few years back, I read Dangerous Liaisons. And that is one where there's a bunch of letters going on. Uh, on. So there, there's a, a bunch of different characters, but but you're getting to know them through their letters. And you're seeing the same thing talked about by different characters. And it's just a really neat way to uh, read a book or, or consume a, a novel in, in this format. And so I, I've, already, I've already been entranced by books that are a result of letters going back and forth. And so this is a cool one, just in the fact that it's one letter. It's one enormous letter. Uh, in fact, John Ames even calls it his diary at one point towards towards the end. So it's kind of like a diary slash letter to, to his son. And what's also neat is that John Ames, the, the letter writer in this case, is a preacher and he comes from a line of preachers. And so part of what you're hearing is what his father encountered and what his grandfather encountered. And his grandfather was a preacher during the Civil War. So what, what does that mean? What, uh, what, kind, of, what kind of issues and, and things would he have had to address in his sermons? And you're, you're talking about small town here. So these are, these are people that, that they knew. And so these are people that have sent their sons to war. These are people who have lost their sons and you're, you're talking to them each week. You're, you're giving a sermon each week. So there's just a lot going on in this novel. Uh, and then there, there's a specific part, uh, a lot of parts about a man named Jack and, and I'll get into that in segment two, but, uh, but that, that's kind of the structure of, of this book. This is my first work of fiction that I've read by Marilyn Robinson, it, actually the first thing I've ever read by her because she's written some nonfiction as well. Uh, I, I enjoyed this thoroughly. It's it's a very it's a very good good novel. Uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, and and it reminded me of some other writers that that I'll highlight in segment two. Uh, but but let me just get into quickly reimagining apologetics, and then uh, and then. And then segment two will cover Gilead, and then segment three, reimagining apologetics. So, reimagining apologetics is a work of nonfiction, and as the title would suggest, it proposes a new way of imagining apologetics. Uh, and it, it kind of uses a play on words with reimagining, largely consisting of engaging the imagination. So, the word reimagining, uh, but but the way it's presented by Justin in this book is is that reimagining engages the imagination. So uh, well done on the, on the title there. What is apologetics? Apologetics it just means defending your faith or, uh, or your beliefs. And it's usually thought of in the sense of, like, uh, of an intellectual endeavor. And so it has this idea that, that Justin calls later on in the book, unassailable truth. So you're presenting ideas as like, these are the correct ideas and it, it 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 really is is targeting the intellect uh, but let me read just a few quick quick pieces one comes in the introduction here and then one towards the end of the book 
So uh, uh, really quickly, what, what Reimagining Apologetics does, what, what Justin uh, Ariel Bailey is doing in this book is looking at two authors in particular. particular. Uh, one of them is George MacDonald, who I've, I've covered at other points in this podcast. And the second one is Marilyn Robinson, who wrote Gilead. And so that's the, the connection here in, in this episode. But let me, let me just read a, a few things here. The first is this. McDonald and Robinson rarely make direct arguments. Rather, they thrust the reader into the midst of stories that breathe with the spirit, embodying the Christian vision. They offer a more robust con- conception of faith's appeal to the human person, exploring the dynamics of faith and doubt, fraught with the messiness of human loves, longings, and laments. They demonstrate that in such matters, it is the imagination that is engaged first, as desire is drawn out through aesthetic experience, end quote. So a c- couple key points there. Uh, just first off, the, that these books are fraught with messiness. Uh, you see that a lot in, in Robinson, and, and I just love that. It's, it's, it's real. Like uh, you have the sense that this, these are real people. These are people you know. These you may see yourself in a lot of these characters. But but that second part too. That um, what what matters and what is engaged first of all is the imagination of the person before the the intellect. So engaging that imagination. Uh, so if if we're looking at the title of this book again, reimagining apologetics. So if apologetics has that connotation of first engaging the intellect, if we are reimagining that, we're we're perhaps looking to first engage the imagination, and and that's what uh, Justin in this book says that authors Marilyn Robinson and George McDonald do. So let me read one more quote towards the end of the book here, and here uh, here's this one. If the Christian faith is not simply a set of of truths to affirm, but more fundamentally a way of seeing the world, then it has to do with with more than convincing our intellect. It also has to do with exercising our imaginations and cultivating imaginative dispositions." End quote. So again, just that this is kind of moving beyond just the the arena of intellect and going more into the area of of imagination. So reading stats, uh, I, I like to share just how long these books take me just so it know, so you know how long it might take you to read the book. So for Gilead, that's a 247 page book. It took me six hours, 49 minutes to read. That was over two days. So I, uh, that was 124 pages a day, which is the I, like blows way past any other pages per day for any book this year. So I, I like to look at that just because it tells me how engaged I am in the book. If I'm reading 124 pages a day, I am into that book. I can't put it down. I'm sacrificing sleep. I want to I want to finish it. So I finished this one in two days. I read it between July 1st and 2nd. Uh, for a Reimagining Apologetics, that is also a 247-page book, same number as, as Gilead. I only read 147 of those pages, though, and I'll explain why in segment three. And that that took me four hours and 29 minutes to read. That was over a four-day period, 37 pages per day between July 3 and July 6. And today is July 6, so I finished this book this morning. Now, uh, let's, let's go in deeper into Gilead in the next segment. Well, you know how you get a feeling when you, you read a book and over time, you, you, you get a similar feeling reading other books. And, and so 
in, in your mind, you begin to equate those books with each other just because of the, the same kind of feeling you get while reading it. Well, I got a very similar reading or feeling when I was reading Gilead as I did when I read Wendell Berry and when I've read George MacDonald in the past. In, in last year, I read back to back, I read a Wendell Berry book and a George MacDonald book. So the Wendell Berry book was Jaber Crow, and then George MacDonald book was Sir Gibby. And I, I randomized the order of my books, or at least I did at, at that point. And so for those two books to go back to back was was pretty interesting. And they they were very similar. That And that was the first time I had, I had read Wendell Berry. And so I, I noticed a lot of similarities there. I covered that when I talked about those books last year. But uh, I got that same feeling when I was reading Gilead. And, and I think what it boils down to is, first off, I want to be like the main characters. And that doesn't mean like the main characters are these, these beautiful, wonderful people in like a Hollywood sense, but there's a grit and there's a realness to the characters. And they love well. Uh, it, it, it can be messy, but they love well, and they see beauty in the mundane. And I think that's that right there is the common feature that I see in in these books. There's beauty in the mundane, and there's there's this appreciation of the simple and the beautiful of of everyday life, and it just adds so much context. Uh, context or uh, that's not the right word it just adds like layers of of beauty to experience to your experience to to look at things in a different way to to notice things it 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 has that impact on you and so i i saw that with gilead and i i just love these types of books because it just gives you a a good feeling of like a, an exalted feeling of wanting to live in that manner. It just kind of expands your world when you read these books. So I, I hope to read other Marilyn Robinson books, but I, I wanted to start with that, just in the similarity I noticed between Wendell Berry, George MacDonald, and Marilyn Robinson here. What's also interesting is that all three of those authors do a sort of series in how they write their books. So Wendell Berry with Jaber Crow, it's, uh, let me grab this book here, but it's, it's called the, um, the Port William membership. And so if you look at some of, of Wendell Berry's books, it, it, it takes place in the Port William membership, but it's from different vantage points. So in Jaber Crow, you read about Hannah Coulter, you write, you read about some of the other people who, you will notice that those are titles of other books by Wendell Berry. So from what I understand is going on, you're, you're, you're getting the vantage point of these different characters, but they all live in the same place. They're, they're, they're all within the same world. And so the same thing with George MacDonald. Uh, you read Sir Gibby and you, re you read about Donald Grant. And so there's another book, Donald Grant. And so you're, you're getting the story from that character's vantage point. And so same with Gilead here. The, uh, Gilead is, is one of a, a series. And, um, and so I, from what I understand, you're, you're, you're kind of getting different vantage points, but within the same world that you've been reading about. And, and 
I, I love that idea. It, it, it's similar, you know, I was kind of thinking of like Narnia and Lord of the Rings to where those books are actually packaged as series. So you, you buy the seven book Narnia series, or you buy the six book, which usually is in three volumes, Lord of the Rings. And you, you buy that together because the, the world is there and, and they kind of somewhat build off each other. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings does, I think, more than 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 Narnia. Uh, but it, there's similarities there. But with McDonald, Barry, and Robinson, the books are, at least how I see them, they're not packaged together in that way to, to where you buy them all together as part of the series. Yet, they they all kind of take place in that, that world. I, I, I don't see that a lot with other authors. I, I know it exists, but like if you just think of kind of the main the main authors, you're you're not seeing a lot of their novels take place in the same area. So I usually don't talk about the the feel a book gives me, but but in this case it just reminded me of the feeling of these these other books. And uh so, uh Ashley who is, who works at Landmark Booksellers uh where I'm the business manager, she she mentioned that Hannah Coulter, the book by Wendell Berry, could also be very closely connected to Gilead here in the sense that Hannah Coulter, I guess, is a book about more the end of life, where so is Gilead in, in the sense of this letter that's being written to his son is, is the end of life. So I, I do want to read Hannah Coulter at, at some point, but if you've read that, maybe uh, maybe you can comment to me uh, by email or, or something and let me know if, if that is the case, if there there is kind of a a, a deeper connection there. Um, next up, I want to highlight one of the the people written about in this book, and, and his name is Jack, but his full name is John Ames Bowton. And John Ames is the name of the main character, the main that or the the person who's writing this letter. And so Jack here is his namesake. And so John Ames, the main character, has a, a best friend, and that friend has a son and names his son after John. Uh, but that that son goes by the name of Jack. But there's this deep connection between the two characters and they they yes, they have the same name, but there's 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 a pull between the two of them. And so there's a lot written about about Jack in in this letter to to John's son. And Towards the end of the book, there's there's a section where you you get to learn a lot about Jack, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And and actually, there's there's not a whole lot of good in it. There there's a lot of bad in in the ugly. And I I thought it was really interesting how, because you you start, you're reading about this and and you're you're kind of thinking to yourself why. Well, first you get engrossed in the story, but then you're, you're at least I was thinking why is he writing all this to his son. Uh, this man is a preacher. There, there should be, you know, some level of privacy into what Jack has told John. So why is he saying all this to his son? And he, and he addresses that at the very end of this long section of just kind of really uh, awful things about about Jack. And he says this, you might wonder about my pastoral discretion, writing this all out. Well, on one hand, it is the way I've considered, I, I have of considering things. On the other hand, he is a man about whom you may never hear one good word. And I just don't know another way to let you see the beauty there is in him. 
end quote. And so kind of in the midst of this just awful story about him, there, there, is, there is some light there as well. And so John wants to be sure that his son sees that and, and, and can notice that in a person that he may never ever hear a good thing about that person going forward. Again, small town, everyone, everyone knows what happened. Everyone knows what this man did. And, uh, his, the father to his son wants to, wants to share the good thing that about him. Last thing I wanted to highlight in in Gilead is just some, some quotes that, that really struck, struck me as I read them. And the first is on the, the topic of the afterlife. So this man is writing a letter. He, he knows he, he doesn't have much time left on earth. And so there's a lot of thoughts about the afterlife and, and what, what comes next for him. So I wanted to highlight three quotes in particular here. The first is this, in eternity, this world will be Troy. I believe in all that has passed here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. Because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely. And I think piety forbids me to try. End quote. So what he's what he's talking about here is, in in eternity, uh, in the next life, the this world will be like Troy. So there will be a remembrance. There will be a recognition of this world, but it will be as as us and Troy and reading about Troy and that ancient civilization. So it was there. There are stories from there. Uh, but in that will be an epic that we that we know and it's sung in the streets, but it's it's just a very small part. So that that's kind of the first thing that he mentions. The second comes on page one of three, and he says this. I've always wondered what relationship this present reality bears to an ultimate reality. I've always wondered what this relationship what relationship this present reality bears to an ultimate reality, end quote. So just, you know, what, what, uh, what is the connection? Uh, uh, are, are any of the desires that he has, are those pointing to something else? And then this one, page 147, mainly I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy, but two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. End quote. So what he's doing there is thinking of, of what, what does he think heaven is going to be like? And it kind of ties back to that, that other quote I just read. But he thinks of it just as like the best of this world, the splendors of this world, and multiplying that by two. And maybe it's more of a multiplication than that, but he just, he just goes with thinking of that, of, of multiplying by two the, the greatest things of, of this earth. Thought those were cool things. Uh, the second one here, um, I thought this was, so this is John, the letter writer, writing about Jack, who I, I, I just mentioned previously. And uh, I thought this was just a good description for a lot of kind of what's wrong with the world right now. Young Boaten just st- sat there grinning, and, and young Boaten, again, is Jack. That's one thing that has always been strange about him. He treats words as if they were actions. He doesn't listen to the meaning of words the way other people do. He just decides whether they are hostile and how hostile they are. He decides whether they threaten him or injure him, and he reacts at that level. If he reads chastisement into anything you say, it's as if you had taken a shot at him as if you had nicked his ear, 
end quote. That was a good description of, of how that, well, first the difference of listening to the meaning of the words or, or listening to, or, or treating words as if they were actions. And you just see that just in, in how quickly people can get angry and how they're shouting back and forth on, on so many different platforms and things. I, I think that's a good distinction there of treating words as actions, as opposed to, to listening to the meaning of words. Um, and then the last quote I want to highlight here is, is towards the end of the book. It is one of the best traits of good people that they love where they pity. And this is truer of women than of men. So they get themselves drawn into situations that are harmful to them. I've seen this happen many, many times. I've, I've always had the trouble finding a way to caution against it, since it is, in a word, Christ-like. End quote. Uh, I, the the reason this stuck out to me is is that um, I I think in contrast to what is so often so often you hear in modern times in podcast episodes and self help books and, and all that kind of thing where they they say to get rid of people in your life that are that are dragging you down uh, that that's just going to drag you down and that is just not very <laughs> you don't you don't you wouldn't find that attitude in, in the Bible. And, and, and that's what I, I like about pointing out here. It's one of the best traits of good people that they love where they pity. And he, he, he wants to, to warn against doing that because he knows what's going to happen. But he can't. As, as a preacher, he can't because, as he says at the end, it's in a word, Christ-like. All right, that... that uh, that does it for Gilead. Next segment here, final segment, I will cover reimagining apologetics. Well, I only read half of this book, and the reason I did so is because the author suggested that as, a, as an option. So I, I read through the introduction, and uh, the, in, in the introduction, Justin says this, I should say that I've endeavored to write part two so that it could stand on its own. Those readers who begin with part one will see my working categories more clearly, but I've restricted more of the explicit connections to the first three chapters to the footnotes. Readers who are most interested in George MacDonald and Marilyn Robinson, or who simply want to see imaginative apologetics at work, may desire to begin with part two. End quote. So I took him up on that. That's that's really why I picked up this book is is to for the pairing with Gilead, and I, I wanted to read the sections about George MacDonald and and Robinson, and then you know kind of how they tied in with the title of the book, Reimagining Apologetics. So after reading the intro, I did skip part one. I jumped right to part two, and then there is a, I believe there's a conclusion kind of at the end. So uh, so yeah, there's part one, part two. I skipped part one, so I will be talking about part two in this episode. And to start off, I want to give the definition, uh, that, that, uh, that Justin gives towards, towards the end of the book here. This is the essence of reimagining apologetics. It, it, it blesses by embodying a Christian vision of the world fallen, yet still created and loved by its creator who has not abandoned it. Even when the vision is not embraced, the very act of blessing has the capacity to enlarge the imagination with a sense of what it feels like to inhabit such a world. End quote. Now that idea of blessing, if you've read Gilead should sound familiar. There's a, a very 
vivid scene in this book with with Jack, who I mentioned in segment two, and uh, that idea of blessing. And so that's um, that's what Justin is is hitting on here. One other one other quote. This comes on page two twenty seven. The culture war can only proceed on the assumption that there is such a thing as a space where God is not present. But if the world remains saturated with God's presence and and address. Despite our attempts to deny or shut it out, Christian engagement with culture becomes a more a matter of discernment than defense, end quote. So let me back up here just for a, for a second. The assumption of, of this book in, in, in reimagining apologetics is that God is present. If he's not, then, uh, then the culture war can, can proceed. But if he is present, then, then the idea of, of, talking about faith or writing about faith is to awaken what is is there and to reveal what is is there either within the person uh, that could be revealing the beauty that that is already there that that exists around us uh, writing about those things talking about those things and so that's that's how these authors George McDonald and Marilyn Robinson tie in with Justin's idea here it's not this, intellectual pursuit where you, where you're you're trying to say all the all the truths that that have to be adhered to but it's more of a there's a presence here let's reawaken that let's reveal that and so the way that it's spoken of in this book is that for George MacDonald it is a waking things up uh George MacDonald it, it Justin says is he he awakened the religious sense, and the title chapter about George MacDonald is waking things up. For Marilyn Robinson, her her idea was to re- reveal the religious depth of experience, and in that chapter, it's called revealing a wider world. So again, MacDonald waking things up, Marilyn Robinson revealing a wider world. I I just love that that context and in, in framework uh, for when you do approach these authors. It's just kind of a good thing to keep in mind. So what George McDonald, he, he, there's a sense of he's waking things up. He, in his writing, he is attempting to wake things up. Marilyn Robinson, she is attempting to reveal a wider world. So let me start with McDonald and go into a few things with him and then Robinson. And then I will tie in another author who is kind of a bridge between these two. So page 125 it is not, after all, the intellect, but the heart that is the site of the spiritual struggle. So this is um, McDonald's ideas here. That and, and so he's writing. He's not writing in a way that that only goes after the intellect, but is going after the heart because that's where he says the spiritual struggle is. Next up. Nature is tenfold brighter in the sun of righteousness, and my love of nature is more intense since I became a Christian, if indeed I am one. Uh, this is a letter that MacDonald wrote to his father about his conversion. And, and I love that. And I, I've, I've, I've heard that said uh, when people have come to faith. They, one thing that becomes immediately apparent is they start noticing trees. They start noticing leaves on the trees like the they have driven by these trees or they've walked by these trees for however many years but then there's a shift to where something mundane as a a tree uh comes to life and 
so I, I loved that he said that nature is tenfold brighter in the sun of righteousness. And my love of nature is more intense since I became a Christian, if indeed I am one. Next up, McDonald suggests that love for God is found by deepening rather than displacing human desire, end quote. I think this is a really key, key point and something that uh, I, I enjoy seeing in works. Uh, there, there may be an idea that that religion or faith is the killing of desire, uh, that the killing of fun or, uh, you know, just letting the inhibitions go. But, but what McDonald suggests here is that, uh, love for God is, is rather, is found by deepening human desire. So it's, it's going deeper into those desires, maybe asking, why are those there? Why, why do I have these desires within, within me? Next up, page 150. In these quotations, we find the basic shape of McDonald's strategy. He begins with the assumption that the things we love have a source beyond themselves, that our deepest longings are not lies. End quotes. So that, that ties in with that previous one of, uh, it's, it's a deepening of human desire, not a displacing. And that is based off the assumption that there is a source behind, beyond the things that we love, and that our deepest longings are not lies. Read one more thing about McDonald here, uh, something that he said, a genuine work of art must mean many things. The truer its art, the more things it will mean, end quote. I love that. And, and I think that's true even of once an artist has created a work of art, and they hear other people discussing it, there, there are things in that work that they didn't intend they didn't realize were there uh but that that's kind of the sign of a good work of art that it it must mean many things the truer its art the more things it will mean so that's a cool idea so now let's go into robinson a little bit some things that um, justin ariel bailey wrote about robinson's work uh there's even there's sections from for most of her uh main Fiction, works of fiction. And so there was a section about Gilead as well. And that was very cool to read after having read the novel. But uh, here's just a few things about uh, that, either about Robinson or, or things that she wrote. So here's the first. The driving assumption in all of her fiction, as Hungerford writes, is that ordinary people have rich and complicated interior lives, that they embody a silent discourse of thought that if we knew its voice would astonish us. End quote. Again, that just goes into that that idea of of the sim simplicity, maybe on the outset or, or what comes to eye, but but actually there's there's this profundity. There's there's a deep there's a deep beauty in the mundane, and so so even an ordinary person, you look in or, ordinary person's life, and you dig deep, and there's a rich and complicated interior life there. There's this silent discourse of thought that if we knew its voice would astonish us. I love that. And just, it, it really encapsulates a lot of what, what you read in Gilead and, and just kind of the, the profundity, the, the, the dynamic, the, the beauty of what's going on. Last thing here is about beauty. Beauty is, as Robinson writes, a conversation between humankind and reality. And we are an essential part of it, bringing to it our singular gifts of reflection and creation. 
Beauty is a conversation between humankind and reality, and we are an essential part of it, bringing to it our singular gifts of reflection and creation, end quote. Again, you, you, you see that in her works. Uh, I mean, her, I've only read one of them, um, but you see that in Gilead. And so I, I love book pairings like this where, where it kind of helps you think through what you just read. And so I, I enjoyed that, that part of, of this one. So let's, let's close out with the bridge so what, what's a bridge between these two authors? Well, J- Justin, in the book, highlights another author that uh, you, you probably know well, and that is C.S. Lewis. And so C.S. Lewis is the bridge in the sense that he wrote books on apologetics, but then he also wrote books awakening the imagination, uh, books like Narnia and, and other works of fiction. And George MacDonald awakened Lewis's imagination. And so we, we probably wouldn't have the C.S. Lewis we know were it, were it not for George MacDonald. Uh, had a tremendous impact just in terms of his faith, but then also um, his, what George MacDonald wrote. Uh, it impacted both Lewis and, and Tolkien and, and a number of other, other authors as well. And I just kind of wonder if, if uh, Lewis awakened that same thing in Robinson, if, if that was, you know, time-wise, if that was, because uh, George MacDonald was, was uh, 1800s, Lewis was mid-1900s, and then Robinson is, uh, is, is still alive and, and, um, and writing. So was, was C.S. Lewis that connection point between George MacDonald and Robinson as well. Uh, I, I hope to read more Robinson. And so maybe I will get that answered. If you know, if you know that answer, if, if, if she was impacted by, by Lewis, I'd love to, to learn that as well. Uh, and you, you can email me. That'd be wonderful. So to recap, uh, Gilead, read it. If you have not read it, it's, it's a relatively short book and it's one where it, it's, it, it, it elicits that desire in you. It, it, um, it, it, it just makes you want to experience life in the way that these characters do. And again, it's not, it doesn't mean that it's just all like everything is good and, and just, you know, everything, everybody's always happy and all that. It's, it's not like that at all. It's, it's real life, but there's beauty in it. There's beauty in the struggle. There's beauty in the pain. Uh, that in that struggle is what leads to the beauty and it's 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 nice to read books like that for reimagining apologetics what what that sought to do was to tie these two authors together George MacDonald and Marilyn Robinson and i it made me wonder if uh if Justin the author has read much of Wendell Berry because i think he would find a lot of um of these ideas there as well. In in my mind, I'm gathering a list of authors. So after after I finish the Great Books project, I'm I what I want to do is is take in different authors that I just want to read all their works and just kind of go year by year. So for instance, you know, I, I want I want to take one year and just read all the works by C.S. Lewis, another year and read all the works by Wendell Berry. Well I've I've just added an, another author to that list and that will be Marilyn Robinson. I want to I want to take a year uh, and, and read all of her fiction and nonfiction works. I, I really enjoyed reading her this this time with, with Gilead. 
that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, I, I would love to hear from you. I, I asked a few questions during the podcast episode there. And if you know those, I'd love, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. I spell my name with a K, so that's E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. Uh, you can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter, and the website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. So I will be back in a week or two. And until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm-hmm.